Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Welcome to our program today. We've got a lot coming up. Americans begged politicians for peaceful progressive revolution for 40 friggin' years. Will it happen? I'm going to get into that in just a minute. And the uh, three-step fascism plan now in place. I mean, this, this is uh, pretty spooky stuff. And on this date in history, it was the Battle of Hastings today in 1066 when King Harold II of England was defeated by uh, William, the Duke of Normandy, in the Norman Conquest, which kind of radically altered British history. So anyhow, that's what's up. Let me start out with my rant today from thehartmanreport.com. It's titled, Americans Begged Politicians for Peaceful Progressive Revolution for 40 Years. Will it happen? And I started out with the, with the story of March 13th, 1962, President John F. Kennedy said, and I quote, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. And here we are. We have armed militias in our streets. We have violence in our state capitals, in our school boards, and on airplanes. And just 10 months ago, we saw an actual attempt at violent revolution in the U.S. Capitol. So what happened to that peaceful re revolution? Here's the history. This is just a quick history of the last 40 years. First off, we had 12 years of Reagan-Bush, which completely exhausted Americans. I mean, there were the continual tax cuts on the rich, multiple tax cuts on the rich, pushing all kinds of federal money to the 1%. There was the war on working people that saw the unionization rate in this country drop by more than half. We saw the repeated attacks on the nation's social safety net, they doubled, Reagan doubled our taxes for Social Security. So it was a, the, the largest tax increase on working people in history. One of 18 times that Reagan raised taxes on working class people. And he made Social Security benefits taxable for the first time since the program was put into place in the 1930s. He eliminated the ability of working class people to deduct interest payments on credit cards and car loans all while cutting taxes on the morbidly rich. He dropped the top tax rate from 74% down to 25%. CEO pay exploded, and because we had no more tax revenue, we stopped building and repairing our infrastructure. For the first time since World War II, working class wages had gone flat, while expenses, particularly for housing, transportation, and healthcare, just exploded. Republican politicians stopped holding town halls and started hanging out with lobbyists. The gutting of the American middle class was underway, and we knew it. This was 1992, 12 years of Reagan and Bush. And so we said, hey, we need something different. How about a peaceful progressive revolution? And along came this new guy from Hope, Arkansas, who promised with his new covenant stump speech, quote, the most irresponsible people of all in the 1980s, said Bill Clinton, were those at the top of the ladder, the inside traders, the quick buck artists, the SNL kingpins who looked out for themselves and not for the countries. CEOs, Clinton told us, who pay themselves a hundred times what they pay the average worker shouldn't get big pay raises unrelated to performance. If a company wants to overpay its executives and underinvest in the future or transfer jobs overseas, it shouldn't get special treatment and tax breaks from the Treasury. Uh, but that's not quite how he governed. He also said, Clinton, he, he promised us all Americans should have universal access to quality, affordable health care, not as a privilege, but as a right. 
But instead, he signed NAFTA, you know, which Reagan had negotiated, began the transit, basically just continued Reagan's policies, at least his economic policies, transferring, you know, uh, tens of millions of jobs overseas, 60,000 factories closed in the United States as a result of this. Clinton tragically uh, echoed Reagan, basically, say, declaring an end to welfare as we know it and an end to the era of big government. Healthcare became more expensive. And the number of people being imprisoned exploded, even as crime was going down. So we went for another peaceful revolution. With George W. Bush in 2000 on the campaign trail, he had said, by, by far the vast majority of my tax cuts will go to the bottom end of the spectrum. Of course, that's not how it worked out. Uh, Bush cut taxes on the very, very rich, like himself and his dynastic family. And we're still spending, we're still pay, you know, we're still in the hole about a trillion dollars a year from the Bush tax cuts. And he also promised that he was going to protect Social Security and Medicare. The Social Security surplus must be locked away only for Social Security, he said. Right. Instead, he pushed through a reform that, that made it a criminal matter for Medicare administrators to even try to negotiate pharmaceutical prices and put a huge hole in Medicare with this notorious Medicare Advantage scam, which has now moved over 40% of seniors from actual Medicare to these privatized and usually for-profit Advantage plans with their in-network requirements and continual battles to get paid for services and things like that. So we said, okay, we want, we want another peaceful revolution. And, that was, and we went with, with Barack Obama in 2008. In his campaign, he promised to allow Medicare to negotiate cheaper drug prices, make it easier for workers to unionize, create two million new jobs by building new infrastructure all across the nation, close the loopholes and the deductibility of CEO pay to get that under control, and, quote, eliminate special tax breaks for oil and gas companies, including repealing special expensing rules, foreign tax credit benefits, and manufacturing deductions for oil and gas firms. None of that, of course, happened. Clint, uh, Obama did nothing about the Medicare Advantage scam. Americans still didn't have a right to health care. Now, now, you know, and, and as if to, and, and a lot of Americans today are suffering under an average $5,900 in deductibles and co-pays from, from the Obamacare plans. Now, you know, it was a good start, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not totally trashing Obamacare here. It was a good start. And Obama did restore the reputation of our country after eight years of torturers and murderers, you know, Bush and Cheney. But we didn't get what we asked for or were promised. And as if to add insult to injury, he refused for a year to use the bully pulpit of the White House to pressure Mitch McConnell into holding hearings on Merrick Garland. So we got another crazed right winger. So then Donald Trump came along in 2016 and he said, oh, I've got your progressive revolution. Just give it to me. See, each one of these elections, we were promised a progressive revolution. Trump said he's going to give every American health care that is terrific and so much better, so much better. He said, we're going to rebuild our aging infrastructure with a massive renovation program. He said, I'm going to rescue and expand Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid without any program cuts. He promised to make medical marijuana available to all Americans. He said he was going to bring home all our jobs from China, Mexico, and Japan. He said he was going to tax Ford at the time was planning on building a new factory in Mexico. He said, we will tax you 35% when you bring those cars back into the United States and any other company that moves overseas. Ford went ahead and built the plant. To, you know, Trump never did anything. He said, I'm going to force Apple to make its computers, phones, and other products here in America again. <laughs> right. He said he was going to end all income taxes on couples earning less than $50,000 a year and that he was going to raise taxes on the rich, quote, so badly that my rich friends will hate me and it's going to cost me a fortune, end quote. He said he was going to require universal background checks for gun purchases and make sure that, quote, states are properly uploading criminal and mental health records, end quote. He said he was going to make federal funding available to help people addicted to prescription opioids and heroin. He said he was going to stop lobbyists from corrupting politicians and drain the swamp. Remember that chant? He said he was going to guarantee health care to all Americans, regardless of pre-existing conditions or income. And he was going to, quote, give six weeks of paid maternity leave to any mother with a newborn child whose employer does not provide the benefit, end quote. Which, by the way, is in the Build Back Better plan. None of that, of course, happened. Instead, it was largely the reverse. So in 2020, again, we tried a peaceful revolution. And we elected Joe Biden. 
And he's actually trying to keep the promises of a peaceful revolution for the first time in 40 years. He's got this Build Back Better program that expands Medicare to include vision and dental and, and uh, hearing aids, would let Medicare negotiate drug prices, would provide free community college, would invest in green infrastructure, would give young families access to free or affordable pre-K education or childcare, and would fund it all by closing tax loopholes on the rich while slightly raising rates on people earning over $400,000 a year and on highly profitable corporations. 100% of Republicans in Congress are opposed to this. 100% of them. Do you want a peaceful revolution? Tough luck, buddy. That's the Republican mantra. And, of course, you've got two sold-out Democrats who have joined the Republicans in this. Or are saying, uh, well, uh, what about my, uh, uh, Joe Manchin, what about my uh, fossil fuel industry? And Kirsten Sinema, what about my friends in Big Pharma? They are openly defying the President of the United States and the leader of their party and the leader of the United States Senate. Now, frankly, I think that if, well, I, I'm not, actually, I was going to talk about Schumer. I'm not even going to get into that right now. Anyhow, meanwhile, we've got right-wing militias getting in the faces of school boards and taking over positions on election boards. There's this continuous undercurrent of talk on right-wing uh, social media pages and groups about a second civil war. They've adopted the Confederate uh, black flag, which meant no surrender, we will fight to our death, as one of their own. And Biden and Pelosi and Schumer are now engaged in this frantic negotiation with Cinema and Manchin to try to get what Americans have been begging for for 40 years past. Somebody needs to tell Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. If you thought January 6th was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. If the Republicans take power again or, you know, I mean, just the Republicans and all their buddies, are, they're openly talking about this. Armed insurrection, arresting elected officials. It's amazing. It's the Tom Harbin program. This is the Tom Hartman program. And on top of that, now there's this whole new plan to put fascism into place on the part of the Republicans. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? Tom Harmon, the prophet, truth, justice, democracy, prosperity, and the American way. Good day to you, sir. <laughs> good day to you, I was just good, good, good. You know, I was watching uh, C-SPAN and Lindsey Scam, you know, Lindsey Graham, but I call him Lindsey Scam. He was on uh, C-SPAN, and he basically said that Trump, um, uh, 2024, Trump presidency, it's, it's for him to take it, pretty much. It's something that affects that. If he wanted, it, it's for him to take it. Now, I thought he was... There was a bill or a law passed to prevent him from running again. I, I could be wrong. I just wanted there, to know. There was no law passed. Uh, probably what you're thinking of is the 14th Amendment, which okay. uh, 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 chapter or paragraph or section, I guess it's called section, section three of the 14th Amendment, says that if you have encouraged or participated in an armed insurrection against the United States, you may not hold public office in the future. And the problem okay, so is that somebody has to actually do something about that. Like, you know, Congress needs to pass a law that says, you know, he did this, or he needs to be found guilty in a court of law, um, you know, that has, uh, or an impeachment. Uh, you know, and, and an impeachment, of course, the impeachment clause of the Constitution explicitly says that if you are impeached and convicted, that you can no longer serve in any public office, even dog catcher if it's an elected office. But Trump was not so convicted in the Senate, so he, he's still eligible to run. Uh, he's still out here, Bertrand. And the other thing is, I don't know if you've been following the Virginia gubernatorial race. I have been. Uh, in, in Virgi uh, yeah, it's, but, um, you know, in the beginning, to my surprise, the Democratic McAuliffe, he was trailing, but he kind of caught up a little bit, and his message was very simple. It's basically jobs, increasing the minimum wage, having a better health care, attacking COVID. He keeping it basically dealing with kitchen table issues versus his opponent, Yunkin, is basically just talking about law and order, 
borderline Willie Horton ad that he's running in Virginia over here, and it's not working. And it's now, and I think McAuliffe will be elected because his message is very simple: it's kitchen sink issue tables, and that's something that Democrats need to make a note of. Thank you so much, Tom. That's okay, Omar. A quick question: you know, the last opinion poll I saw showed the two of them in a dead heat, essentially. That it's a it's a race that's impossible to call. Um, I didn't know that that uh, uh, the, Terry Terry McAuliffe was uh, behind initially. But, uh, in the beginning, when he started, in yeah. the beginning when he started, he was a little bit behind, but he caught up because he's sticking to the meshes, kitchen sink table issues. You know, uh, is, is it you your know, sense that, that Virginia has become a blue state, and if so, why? I think it definitely is demographic. You know, it's closer to D.C. and it is a blue state. It's closer to D.C. We still have pocket of red uh, in Virginia. Uh, if you go rural, closer to Richmond area, Norfolk area all the way up to Roanoke, that's basically still red, closer to the North Carolina border. But Northern Virginia is basically what's keeping Virginia blue. And and, Would that be what has essentially become the D.C. suburbs, Alexandria in that area? Exactly. Exactly. Alexandria, Fairfax, all the way up to Prince William County, you know, and and that is is changing a lot of, uh, it's, it's very diverse. You know, yeah. a lot of Latin people, a lot of Ethiopian, a lot of different international yeah. people. And it's kind of keeping Virginia blue, but it's also, it's, it's the area where it sends most tax money to the state, you know? Huh. And, 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 oh, because it's and, a prosperous and it's, area. Yeah, yeah. high-income areas exactly. tend to be blue. Yeah. yeah, I get it. Omar, thank you. Thanks for the information. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Harbin here with you. Okay, this this uh, uh, Judd Legum published this piece this morning on his uh, popular.info uh, website uh, newsletter, whatever you want to call it, Substack newsletter, and and I think it's it's absolutely brilliant. He's and and it it is happening right in front of all of us. This is their plan for 2024, and increasingly, it's looking like they may well pull it off. It's like maybe we need to start planning now for what do we do when Trump is president, Republicans have taken the House and Senate, and they begin cracking down on democracy all across this country. They start putting, you know, uh, left-wing talk show hosts in jail, or they start putting former Democratic secretaries of state and attorneys general in jail, as they threatened to do uh, this week to the Democratic attorney general in the state of Michigan, Dana Nussbaum, Nessel, Dana Nessel, I think is her name. In any case, the three steps the Judd Legum lays out are number one, rig the elections by putting Trump loyalists in charge of the key election uh, of election administration in the key swing states. See, they really only need to focus this on eight or nine states, the current and potential swing states. And, and some of these, like Texas, for example, has the potential to be a swing state. It's very close to being a purple state. Texas ceased to be a white majority state in 2004, but that had to do with births. Those births are now, what, uh, 2004 was 18 years ago? Am I doing my math right in my head? 16 years ago? Uh, 16, 17 years ago? So in the last, next couple of years, that, you know, the electorate, the, the people eligible to vote in Texas will no longer be majority white. And that's, I think, why you're seeing all this hysteria. So anyhow, they're, they're looking you know, at going after the election administration in key states. They, they are, they, Trump has officially endorsed candidates, uh, right-wing Trumpies, for Secretary of State in Arizona, in Michigan, and in Georgia. 15, a Reuters report says, quote, 15 declared Republican candidates for Secretary of State in five battleground states, Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Nevada, found that 10 of the 15 candidates have either declared that the 2020 election was stolen or called for their state's results to be invalidated or further investigated. The Secretary of State, of course, is the chief election officer for the state in most states. And, and by the way, the companies that are supporting this through the Republican State Leadership Committee are General Motors, Eli Lilly, Facebook, Walmart, AT&T, and Walgreens, principal supporters. Part two of this strategy 
elect Trump loyalists as governors. This is in, in next year, in 2022. This is key to his strategy. And he has endorsed, uh, he's endorsing, you know, Republican candidates all across the country. The company's supporting that, by the way. Um, uh, Eli Lilly, Walgreens, Charter Communications, Boeing, and Deloitte. And number three, put Trump loyalists in charge of Congress. You know, two-thirds of Republicans on January 6th voted to ignore the outcome of the election and make Donald Trump president. If they can take the House, here we are. I mean, if they take the House, that's it. The game, it's game over. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Eddie in uh, Midwest City, Oklahoma. Hey, Eddie, what's on your mind today? Oh, pleasure talking to you, John. I have uh, been observing a few things in my short period of life and uh history does seem to repeat itself and as it stands right now we have uh, what i would consider a, a bunch of uh, grouchy old people which is grand old party uh running everything and basically they want to turn it into nazi germany in 1936. well 30, 33 i'd right? say but yeah well 33 to 36 yeah. uh, basically we're about 34 right now is what they're doing uh, trying to overthrow our, our voting uh, the way it's, it's going. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's, it seems to be progressively getting worse. And I, I don't understand how we have so many educated people that are following this. Uh, you know, they want to remove history from schools. So if we don't know history, we're going to repeat it. Uh, this is it's inevitable. Yeah. But... Uh, what it comes down to, uh, you know, from the conception of their deception, collusion through their delusion, we are being programmed to perceive what they choose us to believe. And it's, it's getting really, we're about six to seven multi-conglomerate news organizations put 60 or 70 people in front of us for us to believe. And we don't get a chance to hear anybody else. It's a sad state of affairs, Eddie. I, I would argue that if you want to make a Germany comparison, that we are closer to late 1932, early 1933, or maybe even a little bit before that. Hitler in 1922, as I'm recalling, maybe 23, um, did his, uh, you know, uh, gave his speech in the beer hall in Munich and then led a crowd, a mob of about a thousand or a couple thousand people down to the Bavarian state capital and tried to march in and arrest the governor of Bavaria and overthrow the government of Bavaria as the beginning of overthrowing the German Republic. He was arrested and uh, sent to prison, and where he wrote Mein Kampf, in prison. But when he came out of prison, the principal way that he rehabilitated himself, uh, in addition to giving speeches around the country, is he hooked up with a woman who was the widow of one of the 30-some-odd guys who were killed by the police during that attempt to overthrow the Munich government. It was far more violent than what we saw on January 6th, but only, only a little bit, right? But the police, the, there was a large police presence, and the police actually fired on the mob when they started attacking the Capitol building, and they killed 30-some-odd people. He took the wife of one of these people, turned her into a martyr, 
you know, tr and and it, it, there's a. Uh, in fact, in, in my daily uh, Hartman report yesterday, there's an actual hot link to a photo, uh, which I got from Dean Obadala, but it's in the archives, the Hitler archives, um, of Hitler with this woman. I, I'm forgetting her name. And, and he turned her into a martyr, which is exactly what Trump is trying to do with Ashley Babbitt right now. And that was one of the ways that he acquired enough political power that in 1933, when the Reichstag was, was on fire, he was able to, to give a, a famous speech. It was sort of his George W. Bush moment. He was not yet in power or in charge. And then, you know, over the course of the next few months, uh, von Papen and Hindenburg said, okay, cool, we'll put you in charge of Germany. We'll make you chancellor if you'll just be a nice guy and quiet down and stop being so hysterical and so weird, figuring that he would turn from a radical fascist into a normal politician once he got political power. And, of course, that's not how it worked out. And so I think that that's really the moment that we're at. And, and if he becomes president again, then we will be in that era. And, 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 and let's keep in mind, I mean, you know, Hitler did a lot of things that were very popular with the German people at first. I mean, you know, obviously his attacking the Jews was, well, actually that was popular with a lot of German people. Germany was largely white and Christian and, and the Jews were, were, had been trashed for years and years and years. But the main things that he did, he built the Autobahn, he, he designed the Volkswagen. He, he revived the German economy. In 1937, just before he invaded Poland, Time Magazine put Adolf Hitler on the cover of its magazine as the man of the year because he was the most popular politician in the world at that point in time. He was even polling higher in Germany than Franklin Roosevelt was in the United States in 1937. Now, 37 was a low year for Roosevelt. Uh, you know, he was in, tied up in the whole, you know, packing the court thing and all this stuff. But... And, and he had kind of pulled back from his programs a little bit to mollify the Republicans. But, but that's, that's where I think we're at, Eddie. And, and, I, and I can't uh, argue with your analysis. It's very, very, very troubling. Thank you very much for the call. John in Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Thank hey, you John. for taking my call, Tom. Sure, you're on the air. And I was just going over your, at least one aspect of, of your rant mm -hmm. about medical and I started, you know, since from Bill Clinton, and when they tried to pass Hillary Care, right. try to pass the public option, it was really knocked down by Democrats. Same thing with Obama. Obama was. Well, hang on just a second, John. Option. It was knocked down by 100% of Republicans and a small handful of turncoat Democrats like Joe Lieberman, who, who knocked down the public option in Obamacare. Let's let's be careful that we don't give Republicans a pass on this. One hundred percent of the Republicans in the Senate right now are opposed to President Biden's agenda. Two Republicans could make Mansion and Cinema irrelevant. Yes, but also uh, Bill Nelson stood in the way. Joe Stupak stood in the way, and I'm calling on the centric Democrats. It's like I'm watching this show again we get close to the precipice of getting exactly what we want but then we get these being so for religious re uh, reasons like stupac or bill nelson who made right now it's josh Gottheimer and and uh you know and and friends in the house and it's mansion and cinema in the senate uh kurt right. schrader here in the in the house of representatives the guy from oregon um uh, was it kathleen rice i think from new york state uh, Scott Peters from California, they all voted against allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices because they're taking money exactly. from the big pharma. Exactly. And the thing is this, I'm a veteran, I'm a disabled veteran, and I don't have to use Medicare and I'm getting close to Medicare age. But I truly feel for these people that own Medicare, Medicare Advantage and not getting the uh, uh, able to negotiate prescription drugs like I get through the VA. Right. It's abominable to me. It yeah. really is. And for these Democrats to stand in the way of that, you know, like I said, it always seems like as soon as we get close to the finish line, it's a centrist Democrat that sticks his foot out to trip us up. Right. And, and they shouldn't I be called centrists. They should be called corporatists because the center yeah, in America right now is exactly where Joe Biden is. Let's do this. Yeah, exactly. So my, my, my thing is this, and this is where I'm starting to come to the ALC model. Perhaps we need to take a page from the Republican playbook, and before a Democrat run, have to have something on our platform to make sure we can't have another Christian cinema. 
In other words, we yeah. can't have somebody saying that they're going to do something and say all the things as soon as they get in and the money starts hitting them, then they change. They flip. So in, in a sense, we have to take a, play, a page from their playbook and from the Republican playbook and primary these guys. Yeah, I'm with, with you. No apologies. I'm with you, John. I'm I'm 100% with you. And this is, and and the Josh Gotch. I mean, anybody who has no labels, problem solvers, or blue dogs after their name. They're Republicans. You know, and, right, exactly. And the excuse is, oh, well, they're from conservative districts, and the conservatives in those districts really want somebody who's sort of like the Republicans. That is simply not true. Bernie Sanders exactly. won all 55 counties, I believe it's 55, in West Virginia in that primary in 2016. He won every single county. Progressives actually win elections. The problem is that the party in many cases, in many of these states, is also captured by big industry. And so, you know, they're only putting up the Josh Gottheimers and, and Scott Schra and uh, Kurt Schraders of the world for for the Democratic nomination. And then you're forced into a choice, as Arizonans were with Kirsten Cinema, you know, when she first ran for the Senate. You're forced into a choice between a corporate Democrat or a corporate insane fascist Republican. And that's not a difficult choice. But still you end up with a corporate Democrat who is sabotaging what for 40 years the American people have been saying, we would really like this. We would like to join Canada and have a decent standard of living and a peaceful place to live. We would like to join Europe and have a decent standard of living and, and you know, a national health care system and free college for our kids. And, and instead, we've got what we've got. John, thank you for the call. Very well said. Dylan in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Dylan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I say all or nothing. All or nothing. If they don't want to agree, if they want to keep on bringing it down, bringing the, the Build Back Better plan down, down to 1.5, trillion i say this forget it just don't do it well here's the problem and dylan if 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 the democrats say nothing if if the if the uh, so-called centrist if the corporate paid off if the bought off democrat i mean, I, I think we just need to start calling them what they are if, they, if the bought out uh, bought off mm -hmm. democrats bring down president biden's plans and these are and let's make it clear this is not bernie sanders plan bernie sanders plan was a six to seven trillion dollar plan this is joe biden's plan mm -hmm. If, the, if these paid-off Democrats bring down that plan and it goes to zero, then you are going to see Donald Trump or somebody as bad as him as president in 2024. Well, this is what they need to do. They need to play really hardball. I say that they should plan investigations on Joe Manchin's daughter for all of the crimes she was in and yeah. start putting out all of the money that he's getting from his son. He's not voting with us. Well, that, that's Why becoming, you know, the... the, the you know, his family connections are, are now in the press. People are becoming aware of it. It's, it's, it's probably troubling him, although maybe he doesn't care. I don't know. Well, but number one, take, I'm concerned that if we, if we beat these guys up too badly, specifically Cinema and Manchin, either one of them could flip to the Republican Party, which is what uh, uh, Governor Justice did in West Virginia. He, became, he got elected as a Democrat, and he, and he declared himself a Trump Republican like a, a couple of months later. And he's still the governor. Well, maybe it, maybe and Joe Manchin could up. do that. Well, you know. Maybe it'll wake them up. Maybe I'm, I'm not a fan team. of going down with the ship, Dylan. I think that if, yeah. we, if we end up with a one and a half or two trillion dollar package or so, you know, something that is, that is good enough that Americans actually feel like life got better, that enhances the chances of the Democratic Party well, in 2022 what, what, and 2024. What about Biden taking out the military bases in all the states that aren't agreeing with him? Play hardball. Say, okay, I, you know, there, there are bases in Texas, no more in West Virginia, you're out. I would rather see something that's, you know, like legislation suggesting that states can only get a certain percentage of federal funds back based on what they pay in. You know, the, a, a no more welfare for red states bill, something like that. I get what you're saying. I get how upset you are, but we've got to be we got to be careful here, Dylan. Thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. Both Adam Schiff and Liz Cheney have now come out and said, we are going to prosecute criminally people who don't show up or don't give us documents.
Hi, it's the Tom Hartman Book Club with the Tom Hartman University, and today we're reading from Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. I'm reading from the preface. This is page XIII. The world right now is tottering atop three major thresholds. An environment that is so afire that it may soon no longer be able to support human life. An economic free market system that is almost entirely owned, run, and milked by a tiny fraction of 1% of us and has crashed and in many ways is burning around us. And an explosion of human flesh on the planet that has turned our species into a global petri dish just waiting for an effective agent to run amok. Four mistakes have brought us to this point and the failure to recognize them at their deepest level will only push us faster toward total tipping points where we are thrown over the three thresholds and into disaster. All four of these mistakes are grounded in our culture, our way of thinking, our way of seeing the world, the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and why we're here. The first mistake is a belief that we're separate from nature. Our religions tell us that we were created by a supernatural being who is not part of this earth and not from this planet. He set us apart from all other life and many among us, perhaps even the majority of the six billion of us, roughly seven billion now, don't even believe that we are animals, but instead think we're a totally unique life form. The second mistake is a belief that an abstraction an economic system is divine and separate from us. This mythical so-called free market, so we believe, operates under its own divine rules and is entirely and eternally self-regulating. It is always right. The fact that worldwide it's more than 95% owned and run by fewer than 0.000001% of us, it's just the way things are, always were, and always will be. We are here to serve the economy, this belief goes. It's not here to serve us. The third mistake is a belief that men should run the world and that women are their property. While it may seem that women's rights are well advanced and society is nearly egalitarian in the developed world, the United States, Western Europe, and Australia combined are only about a quarter of the population of the world. The fourth mistake is a belief that the best way to influence people is through fear rather than through the power of love, compassion, or support. We stand baffled when Palestinians in Gaza vote for a political party that has a long history of terrorist activity, somehow completely overlooking the fact that that same group has been feeding people, building schools and hospitals, and providing old age and widow pensions to people in need. We think we can threaten and bomb people into liking us and behaving in ways consistent with our best interests while ignoring their own best interests. We have come to believe that we are not our brother's keeper, that we are separate from all other humanity on the planet, and in all that, we are mistaken. Civilizations have come and gone, and those long gone vanished mostly because they despoiled their commons, allowed small elites to control their economies and governments, and lived in ways that were unsustainable. Those who survive for centuries or millennia are the ones that learned how to protect their commons, engage in non-toxic commerce and governance, and organize their cultures and lifestyles in ways that could continue in the same place and the same way down through the ages. If we don't learn the lessons of the latter, we shall face the fate of the former. The book is Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. Matthew in Oak Parks, California. Hey Matthew, thanks for listening on TuneIn, what's up? Hey Tom. I just wanted to bring up, you know, the graduated income tax system in the United States. I don't think people understand that everybody, even a millionaire, pays the same tax rate on the first 25000 the first 100000 and so on, until you get to the 400000 That's where we're trying to raise taxes on Correct. income above 400000 That's, you know, people don't understand. They think we're going to try and raise taxes on the rich. They think we're raising it on all their income. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Matthew, and that's why it's important to, and I, and I try to do this as often as I can remember, uh, to use the phrase tax bracket rather than tax rate, because the, you know, the top tax bracket was 74% when Reagan came into office. He dropped that top right. tax bracket down to 25%. And, yeah, and probably I should go impact. in and edit my piece today to, to reflect that. It made a huge impact when Reagan did that because they were he was 74% applied to income above a million, I think, at that time, or 500000 So when you reduce that rate, they're getting a huge windfall oh, yeah. based on what their pay rate well, was. Well, that's why, you so know, there were no billionaires when Reagan came into office. Now right, we've got like 700 to, of them. 
Well, I'd, I'd make billionaires illegal. At one or two billion, we start confiscating the money. They have to give it back to the treasury or whatever. Yeah, it gets problematic, but I'm, but I'm with you. In fact, I own the website, nobillionaires.com or .org or both. Um, but yeah, I, oh, really? I, yeah, I do actually. It's uh, I haven't right. done much with it in years. It's got an old clip from from years ago on it. But uh, yeah, no billionaires. Well, I saw a lecture from you in Oak Park about 15 to 20 years ago. That was great. So well, you, you have been in Oak Park, California, which is in Ventura County. Oh, okay. And that was a really good time. Well, thank you, thank you, Matthew. Matthew, the other, Adam, the other thing I can, okay, go ahead. Oh, one more thing. Just one more quick thing. I'm. Annual budget deficits, people have to understand the national debt, the total that they talk about, $30 trillion, is an accumulation of all the years they had deficits, annual budget deficits. Correct. And, and a good chunk of that debt, about $5 trillion of it, is money that the government owes itself. It's like the Social Security Trust Fund and things like that. Absolutely. Federal pension funds. And you got to remember, like, um, when Bush left office, there was a budget deficit. When Clinton left, there was a surplus. Ford Bush Jr. Same with Jimmy and Carter. He left with a Jimmy Carter and, and, and Bill Clinton were the last two presidents to have balanced budgets. Yeah, and then Bush takes over and he leaves us with over a trillion dollar budget deficit for one year. And then Obama comes in and reduces that to about 400 billion. Right. And then Trump leaves with 1.6 trillion or whatever. Right. So the Republicans And that's the one the year deficit. Yeah. They're the worst on the economy. The last hundred years proves it. Oh, yeah. And, and, what, and what you're seeing played out, Matthew, is Jude Winiski's two Santa Claus theory, that when Republicans control the White House, they should spend money like drunken sailors to make the economy look good and make Americans think that Republicans give you a good economy, but it's just a sugar high. Yep. And then, and, then uh, and, and cut taxes to raise the budget deficit and thus the national debt. So that when Democrats come into office, they can scream about the national debt, refuse to raise the debt ceiling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to force those exactly Democrats to right now. Right. To force exactly those Democrats right not to it. spend any more money. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And this is this is the two. This is two Santa Clauses, you know, in in uh, whatever, you know, in, on steroids. And uh, in fact, I, I wrote an op ed over at HartmanReport.com a couple of weeks ago titled Santa Claus is about to drop a bomb on Joe Biden. Uh, you can read the whole thing, complete with links to the original 1974 or 76 article by Jude Wininski in the Wall Street Journal. It's all right there. It's not like it's a secret. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Sydney in Moore Park, California. Hey, Sydney, what's up? Hi there. Hi, Tom. Grateful again. Okay, I'm trying to deconstruct this. I love that we're taking over the narrative and the nomenclature and redefining who we are. Um, it's, there's no simple solution because we can't, like you said, we can't pressure cinema and Christian and all these, you know, corporatists um, to the point where they flip on us. But we can continue to pressure, canvas, re-educate. It's all like one word now. That's activism. And um, uh, I was going to say, you know, and I think, you know, part of that is to continue to build on. We can't have democracy and corporatists in one term. It's just like an oxymoron, it seems. 
And so I well, just kind of wanted to roll with that. That's the problem. And, is the yeah, Supreme Court legalized this? I mean, this this is the in 2010 with Citizens United. Oh they said, you know, if if a billionaire or a corporation wants to own a politician, that's called free speech. Yeah. Well, I, you know, that's the thing. So that's the power that I feel like progressives and Democrats we're the same. You know what I mean? Like we are values. Every time I call and canvas, which is daily to Georgia, by the way, we need everybody on board. Mm-hmm. If somebody needs us in Texas, Georgia. Boom. You're doing phone call. banking, Let's Sydney. Oh yeah, phone banking through through what organization? How, how can people uh, emulate your uh, your activities? Yes, sir. Through mo- moveon.org and Great. through letsmobilize.org and through uh, postcards. Uh, uh, Tony at uh, postcards. I believe that's on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just every at every level. Step it up. If I'm I'm disabled, okay. I'm a stay at home mom, okay. But here's the thing: if I'm having a sick day, I stay home. Write postcards. If I'm listening to your show, I'm also writing postcards or I'm about to do a text bank for an hour, an hour a day for like exercise. You are wonderful. Um, sorry. Oh, listen, <laughs> I don't know. Just I, I'm just wonderful. grateful. My parents were, you know, my parents were immigrants. Listen, but no one respects the flag more than my mom, who's just a single mom immigrant. My, my, my fathers are all, you know, third generation uh, war veterans. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the thing. Uh, let's just own it. Let's just mm-hmm. own our integrity, own our truth, and then massively get out there. If you're a professor, this is the time to be offering canvassing for school credit. We did that in Northridge mm-hmm. and um, got massive amounts of people out to canvass. And wow. um, just like, yeah. It, it, you know what I mean? It's just like, um, just like it just takes like a emptying that cup and just, I did don't know. Did you know that in Montana, Sydney, they passed a law yeah. making it illegal, quote, for students to engage in, quote, voter identification efforts, voter registration drives, signature collection efforts, ballot collection efforts, or voter turnout efforts for federal, state, local, or school elections inside a public campus operated facility. They made it a crime to do what you're talking about doing. That's insane. In Montana. This is what the Republicans just did. Senate Bill 13. It passed. It's been signed by the governor. Oh, it passed. Oh, my God. So now we got to pass. Then yeah. we got to double down. And now we got to pass something to say, you know what? Uh-uh. It, we can canvas. That is democratic. And everything democratic, democratic. What is that? What is our values? And, um, you know, like, if I have a problem, sorry, I keep rambling, but, like, if I have a problem at my school or my school district, I don't just call. I call the school board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I engage ex- exactly with who needs to be engaged with. And it's no fear, because fear is, we can't have love, we can't have progress with that. I mean, it's okay. You're doing your amazing job, Tom, of just, like, giving us the knowledge. But now we are receiving it, and it's, like, up to us to activate it, I feel like. Yeah, well, I don't you're, know. You're doing anyway. a great job, Sydney, and I'm so glad that there's platforms out there like MoveOn.org and, and the others you mentioned where people can do this. The one thing I would add to you know, the conversation that I yes. had before the break with, with uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't recall the name of the caller, but um, uh, is that, uh, yes, I'm concerned that if we publicly uh, pressure or humiliate a mansion in cinema too much, or if the president or Schumer yeah. does, that they could flip to the Republican Party. And there are Republicans out there who are reaching out to them. I mean, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell a couple of weeks ago was kind of trolling us all by saying, I pray for them every day. Um, But on the other hand, there is private pressure. And Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer are doing their best to bring that private pressure on these two people. And the problem is that, you know, when somebody, it's like being a made man in the mafia. I mean, you know, when you have sold your soul to a giant corporation, and dance to their tune for years and years, you don't just suddenly say, sorry, I'm not going to do your bidding anymore. Uh, you know, it's, it's very unfortunate. Sydney, thank you. Thank you. God bless you. What you are doing is the key to the whole thing. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Wynn in uh, Solon, Maine. Hey, Wynn, what's up? Well, I thought I'd respond to the question of fascism. Have, have we, we gone too far? Right. I believe we have gone too far. We're way, way behind the curve there. So you know? what do we do? Well, we're already in a surveillance state. You know, I was telling mm-hmm. people in the 90s about a little program that's called Echelon. I don't know if you've heard of that. I have. That was yeah. the NSA. Are you aware of that? Sure. Yeah. Have you ever it was one of the early okay. surveillance programs, yeah. I thought 
that was in the 90s, you know, uh, where... Uh, the the, the pre-9-11, shall we say, surveillance programs. Well, I mean, it exploded after 9-11. Absolutely. You know, that has been going on a while, and, and nobody paid any attention to it. You know, Edward Snowden came, you know, what, six years ago or something like that, but... You know, we're, we're kind of behind the curve a lot, you know, with some of that stuff. And you said we could not have imagined in the 60s and 70s that it would come to this today. Yeah. Well, I would take exception with that. Uh, George Orwell wrote a little book called 1984. You're right. And, and he wrote that, I believe it was published somewhere around 1934. No, I think it was in the 1950s, but, you know, yeah. Yeah, I think he wrote that at least in the 30s. Okay. Or not. Well, you may well be right, Lynn. I wrote that when I was about 10 or 11 years old, when it was required reading for my grade level, which is probably around fourth grade, something like that. The book is banned now in school. I know, I know. It's, you know it's... So, so we have uneducated, stupid Americans, and, and with poor memories at best, you know, Newspeak, it's here. We've got it. Yeah. You know, we have things like, uh, what's a neoliberal? You want to confuse a bunch of uneducated Americans? Right. Yeah, neoliberals. They have no no concept. I would say 95% of the American public have no idea what a neoliberal is. Why I, don't we call them what they are? Fascist. Well, right. the neoliberals are not fascists. The neoliberals are economic fascists. But the, Well, actually, you look at... You look at the neoliberal policies in Chile, you know, openly supporting a fascist like Pinochet. Yeah. When, when I got to move along. But thank, thank you for your, your contribution to the discussion. Michael in Denver. Hey, Michael, what's up? Yes, hi, Tom. Thanks hey, uh, for taking my call. <laughs> Let me grab myself here for a second. Uh, I just was calling and mentioned uh, when I uh, t uh, talked to your screener there that um, I'm looking at across the map, the political map, social map, and everything. And one of the things I you know, have to say as a lifelong Democrat uh, that we, uh, you know, the, the phrase that it, it, with Democrats, it's like herding cats. I get sick and tired of hearing that because I think it really puts in the mind of people that um, think more like me but may not be really, you know, as invested in democracy as I became in 1968 before I went into the military that we've got a lot of groups together and we really need to have one block to, to help and push the Democratic Party, because we're a two-party uh, system still, to push for and against the, uh, for, for our values and legislation for what we need. And um, in some ways, we get so spread out, and the more, we, the more and more we get spread out, I believe the weaker and weaker we are yeah. in the message. Yeah, no, I get it, Michael. This, this is why I keep saying, and thank you for the call, this is why I keep saying you need to get inside the Democratic Party. You know, the, the, the right-wingers, the hardcore, now you've got QAnon has infiltrated and taken over most of the Republican Party. Progressives need to get inside the Democratic Party. Now, we'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Code Red by E.J. Dion Jr. It's how progressives and moderates can unite to save our country. This is from the introduction titled The Opportunity We Dare Not Miss. Will progressives and moderates feud while America burns? Or will these natural allies take advantage of a historic opportunity to strengthen American democracy and defeat an increasingly radical form of conservatism? The choice is in our politics is just that stark. This book is offered in a spirit of hope, but with a sense of alarm. My hope is inspired by the broad and principled opposition that Donald Trump's presidency called forth. It is a movement that can and should be the driving force in our politics long after Trump is gone. His abuses of office, his, his divisiveness, his bigotry, his autocratic habits, and his utter lack of seriousness about the responsibilities of the presidency drew millions of previously disengaged citizens to the public square and the ballot box. The danger he represented inspired young Americans to participate in our public life at unprecedented levels. 
tens of thousands of Americans, especially women, have gathered in libraries, diners, and church basements to share wisdom, to organize, and in many cases to run for office themselves. These newly engaged citizens have created an opportunity to build a broad alliance for practical and visionary government, as promising as anything since the Great Depression gave Franklin Roosevelt a chance to build the New Deal coalition. To seize this opening, progressives and moderates must realize that they are allies who have more in common than they sometimes wish to admit. They share a commitment to what public life can achieve and the hope that government can be decent again. They reject the appeals to racism that have been Trump's calling card and the divisiveness at the heart of his electoral strategy. Together, they long for a politics focused on freedom, fairness, and the future. This new politics would be rooted in the economic justice that has always been the left's driving goal and in the problem-solving approach to government that moderates have long championed. It's true that these camps often battle over whether the nation should seek restoration or transformation in the years after Trump. In fact, our country needs both. To restore the democratic norms we have always valued, we must begin to heal the social and economic wounds that led to Trump's presidency in the first place. Yet there is resistance to common ground among progressives and moderates alike. They often mistrust each other's motives, battle fiercely over tactics, argue over how much change our country needs, and squabble over whether specific policy ideas go too far or not far enough. The moderate says, hey, progressive, you think that if you just lay out the boldest and most ambitious approach to any given problem, the people will rally to your side. Really? For one thing, people may like your objective, but think you're changing things way more than we have to. And we can battle to the death over, say, a Democratic Party platform plank or the first draft of a bill. But without the hard negotiating and compromising that legislative politics requires, a bold idea will remain just a platform plank. That really doesn't do anyone any good. You subject everyone to so many litmus tests that we might as well be in chemistry class. And God save us from your abuse on Twitter if we disagree with you. You lefties have no idea how to win elections outside of Berkeley or Brooklyn, and some of your ideas are so sweeping that they'll scare potential voters away. Moderates are also right that Americans in large number are tired of politics that involves more yelling than dialogue, more demonizing than understanding. But progressives are right to say that for the last three decades, moderates have spent too much time negotiating with themselves. Consider all the effort Democrats put into wooing Republicans by responding to their proposals to amend Obamacare. The book, Code Red, by E.J. Dion, Jr. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and Kathy in Independence, Oregon. Hey, Kathy, what's up? Hey, Tom. I see on the TV all this stuff about us going to war with China about Taiwan. Yeah. And I'm wondering, if we're going to do that, why haven't we started mobilization? Start, you know, put all everyone between the ages of 16 and maybe 62 or 70 in the draft. You know, I yeah. mean, I, I understand they make our clothing for army for the army. We need to start making that here. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things we need to do in mobilization. Why aren't we getting ready? Two things. Number one, the wars of the future, let's say, will not be fought by people on battlefields. They will be fought electronically and they will be fought remotely with drones and, and bombs and things like that. But, but the electronic part of it is the biggest part. There's actually a whole chapter about this in the book that I've got coming out in six months, The Hidden History of Big Brother, about how we've been attacked on multiple occasions, actually, here in the United States. Our infrastructure has been attacked. Dams shut down, bridges closed, factories blown up, basically, by people getting inside their their manufacturing systems, literally by several other countries. And so oh. if we want to defend Taiwan, if we want to prevent China from physically taking over Taiwan, we have to be ready for China to say, okay, that's it. No more goods going to the United States. You think we've got supply problems now? It's going to get mm -hmm. insane, number one. I mean, they will mm -hmm. bring us to our knees just economically through that. Number two, They've got extraordinary hacking capability. And one of the big innovations that George W. Bush brought was making all the security, the hardening of critical facilities like nuclear power plants. And by hardening, I'm talking about in the digital world, making them impervious to hacking and things. George W. Bush made that all optional. So we've got facilities. Oh yeah. So we've got facilities around the country where the Chinese could simply come in and shut down a nuclear power plant, or even worse, just shut down the cooling system. 
so that the nuclear power plant melts down and everything within 200 miles of it turns into Chernobyl. And they could do this, and we've got, what, 130 nuclear power plants in the United States? I mean, these, they could shut down our water systems, they could turn off our electricity systems, and they could do all of this in one day. I mean, just consider a concerted attack. This is how these war games that we are practicing with China, this is how they play out, is, you know, they shut down our supply lines, no more ships coming to us. They're willing to take the economic hit for that, no problem. They're supplying the rest of the world. They're, you know, they no longer need the United States. They couldn't have done this 20 years ago. They can easily do this now. And then their hackers get into, into the act, and they've got a division of their military that's like our Air Force is all about jet planes. Well, they've got, you know, and, and Trump said, created a space force. Well, they've got a cyber force, and they, uh, an offensive cyber force. And it's not just China, by the way. Pretty much every developed country in the world is doing this. But if, specifically to your question, if we chose to go to war with China over Taiwan, if we chose to protect Taiwan, it's not going to be our soldiers versus their soldiers or even probably our ships versus their ships. It's going to be that they're going to bring us to our knees in probably less than a week. And, uh, you know, it's a very, very troubling scenario, Kathy. And I don't know what to do about it. I don't have any easy answers for this. I'm a big fan of Taiwan. I've been there many times. It's a democracy in that part of the world. You know, that's where I'm at. Kathy, I got to run, but thank you for the call. I mean, this, this is a huge issue and with no easy answers. And it, to a large extent, it is the consequence, in my opinion, of the 40 years of neoliberal trade policy that built China by, you know, with American consumption. Anyhow, we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. We need to get active. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.